Welcome to Deal Volume, McKinsey's podcast on all things private markets. I'm Brian Vickery, your host and a partner at McKinsey & Company. In this series, we cover the best of our research and insights and bring you thought-provoking conversations featuring industry experts, insiders, and thought leaders. Whether you're a seasoned pro or a newcomer to the space, we welcome you to join us in this ongoing exploration of the private capital industry. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode, and let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast. Today's episode is about the future of real estate, and I'm pleased to be joined by my friend David Steinbach, the Global Chief Investment Officer and Co-Head of Investment Management at Heinz, the global real estate investment management firm. Heinz is one of the largest real estate investors, developers, and service providers in the world, with nearly $100 billion in assets under management and operations in 30 countries. David has worked at Heinz for 24 years and leads investing for the firm globally. David, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get into the conversation today. I thought I might start by summarizing some of the findings from a report that McKinsey Global Institute recently released called Empty Spaces and Hybrid Places, which explores the implications of hybrid work for real estate today and into the future. We've spent the last 12 months reading nearly every report out there, collecting, analyzing data, talking with academics that have studied the topic, and working with our colleagues that serve Fortune 500 occupiers. We've also surveyed more than 12,000 individuals in major cities around the world to understand how employees today are experiencing hybrid work, how it's changed their lives, and what they intend to do going forward. thought I might start with four key takeaways and would love to bring you into the conversation, David. The first takeaway here, hybrid work is here to stay. Office attendance has stabilized at something like 30% below pre-pandemic norms, though that, that number varies substantially across cities and among individual companies and, of course, among individuals themselves. What we know is that industry matters, company size matters, and company culture out of the individual company and the individual leaders matter quite a bit. We know now that knowledge economy workers think those that are professional services, technology, financial services, and those employees at larger companies have some of the lowest attendance numbers. Some of these factors go into explaining why a city like San Francisco has been one of the cities most impacted by the pandemic. And while we don't necessarily think that attendance today will be exactly what it will be in a few years, we do believe that hybrid work is the way of the future for most workers and for most companies. And if you remember 18 months ago, 24 months ago, we were all talking about the return to work. When are we going back? When are we going back to the office with the assumption that eventually we were all going back there. And I think as we've studied it, the preponderance of evidence today would suggest that hybrid work really is the way of the future. And the vast majority of office employees will be working two to four days per week in the office. Of course, that isn't all. We'll have some that are five days a week as we do now. We'll have many that are remote as we do now. But for that vast majority, they're in some form of hybridity. Our second major finding is that the ripple effects of hybrid work are substantial and they extend really beyond office. So many of the reports that are out there have studied the impact of lower attendance on office occupancy, but we were particularly interested in the behavioral changes that working in the office fewer days per week has enabled. What we found is that employees, when untethered from the daily commute, have moved out of the urban core. The U.S., prior to the pandemic, was already suburbanizing. And while a lot has been said about those that are moving south and west, and you could think New York to Miami or New York to Phoenix, the bigger effect was really that acceleration of people moving from urban cores to suburbs of the same city. And importantly, as we studied and our survey respondents validated this, those people that have moved aren't going back. And so a couple of years ago, we talked about the folks that had left that urban core. Once they returned to the office five days a week, they were going to move back into the urban core. 
And really everyone that we surveyed that's moved said they have little intention of moving back closer to the office. Many have moved where they are not beyond commuting distance. So they're still going. Of course, they're still going two, three, four days a week, but they're commuting a little bit longer than they used to, but they're now okay with their situation. Along with that, now that more people have moved into suburbia and they're commuting less often than they once did, they're also shopping less often near the office. The result was showing up in the data is that retail foot traffic in suburbia is nearly back to where it was prior to the pandemic, while retail foot traffic in urban cores remains substantially depressed, particularly in office-dense neighborhoods, right? When we study within the context of an individual city, those retail centers that are in more diverse neighborhoods that aren't office-centric neighborhoods have seen foot traffic return more robustly than those that are in really dense office cores. The third takeaway we have is that behavioral changes have had substantial impact on real estate demand overall. No surprise there, right? Of course, we're already seeing some of that impact. And occupancy in office, retail, and even residential has fallen in most of the cities that we studied. We were interested in the future and to understand what might happen going forward, we modeled several versions of that future. In our moderate scenario, which assumes that attendance climbs from today's levels to about halfway back to pre-pandemic levels, demand for office real estate will be about 13% lower in our median city in 2030 than it was prior to the pandemic. That number again varies quite a bit by country and quite a bit by city within countries. And it's driven both by the relative attendance of those cities, which can be somewhat idiosyncratic, and by the underlying population growth and the job growth of those cities and what we forecast over the next several years. And if that's our moderate scenario, our severe model, which says that attendance stays right where it is today, so we don't have any further rebound from where we are now, we project demand down by as much as 38% in the most affected cities. And I would just note for you, David, as a Houstonian, that our modeling projects Houston to be one of the least impacted cities, which is driven both by relatively high attendance and a strong underlying population growth. The fourth and last point I make before bringing you in here, David, is to remind us that real estate is inherently local. And that came through in the work that we did. And it's probably more true today than it's ever been. Our projection, they vary not just across countries and cities, but at the neighborhood level. Those neighborhoods and cities characterized by dense office space, expensive housing, and large employers in the knowledge economy, those were the most affected and have been the most affected by the pandemic. If real estate was location, location, location five years ago, it's location to the ninth power today. The things that have always mattered in real estate matter more in the current environment than they ever did. That's a quick synopsis of the report. Of course, there's a lot more in there. If listeners are interested in reading more of the findings, you can find our full report at mckinsey.com backslash real estate. And with that, David, I'd love to invite you into the conversation. I thought we might start by talking about the future of real estate and the future of work more broadly, where I know Heinz obviously is at the tip of the spear here. In my conversations with you, I've been fascinated by your perspective on not just where the office market is today, but how our current situation is an outcome of a much longer term arc that I certainly didn't appreciate. I think most people don't appreciate. And whereas our report was focused on that singular, the impact of hybrid work and that change that's happened over the last few years, the behavioral change that it's driven, and through extension on the real estate and across real estate asset classes, there's really a much longer term, broader arc going on here. I would love to just bring you into that conversation, get your thoughts there. I know you have a lot to say about it. Yeah, obviously there's a lot of great content within your reports and what you just discussed to break through in this discussion. 
But yeah, I think first comment would be something that you said a minute ago, which is real estate is local. And as I think about the changes that have happened within our industry, a lot was occurring well before COVID happened. Real estate was already becoming a service and there was a lot of other things happening in terms of a convergence of product types such as multifamily, retail, even industrial in some cases, where almost the creation of ecosystems was really driving our performance in the market. And all those trends were underway before COVID. Like many things, COVID was an accelerant or something that caused what was already happening just to move forward a little bit sooner. But I also think it's important to remember and just in a global context, I know we're going to talk a lot about the United States, which is the tip of the spear for a lot of the change. But what's happening in the office market broadly, it is very different in different places. And I think your report actually notes that as well. I think it's interesting to think about impacts of history and how historical implications can affect our world today. And I, when I think about the U.S. office market specifically, you have to remember that the tax code in the 1980s really drove a lot of development. I'd say even oversupply in most markets. Following that, there was the creation of certain funds that bought a lot of that real estate up. And I would argue underinvested in those office buildings for probably 15 years. And then after that, we had 0% interest rates for about 15 years. And that created a dynamic where a lot of tenants were, frankly, and landlords were incentivized to financial engineer up the rents and create higher tenant inducements basically a capital inducement to build space that further kind of distorted things, if you will, in terms of dynamics of supply and demand within office and what expectations tenants have. And so all those things are leading us to today where you've got a lot to unwind. You have 40 years of asymmetric things and events that have caused us to get where we are, which I think is just a very interesting historical context when you think about office more broadly. And you kind of come into this moment with underinvestment and then the experience, like we've talked a lot about real estate becoming so experiential and the criticality of what's happening in the space. And those two things come together into this current moment. And as we postulated, you know, it's, there's a lot of real estate out there that's not fit for purpose today because of those combining factors. I think what's also happening is a lot of the owners of the real estate don't fully have their head around for what to do in this new world. So if real estate's becoming a service and there's a shift in expectations that the tenants have, not everybody can deliver upon those changing dynamics. And I think that's yet another element. So whenever we look down at the market today, obviously you've got some hardware elements. The hardware is kind of the bricks and mortar, the building. Some of the hardware elements are no longer useful, relevant, need to be radically changed, just don't fit the taste of the modern employee. But I'll call it the software elements, which is what you're doing inside the four walls, which is that execution piece also needs to radically evolve for the employees changing taste as well. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about where we are now. So that brought us into today. And there's a lot of prognostication out there. Some folks think we're in a doom loop. I was read an article this morning that Wall Street's getting excited about office being on sale. There's a lot of different perspectives on where we are. Like you guys are as close to this market as anyone in the world. Like how do you think about existential threats versus real pockets of opportunity in the current moment? I think looking back on other cycles, just as a data point, it is interesting looking at what happened with retail about 10 years ago when e-commerce really hit that wave. And there's a lot of excitement about logistics and what opportunity that was. And that certainly was a deep pool of opportunity and demand. And there's a lot that needed to be built in order to service kind of a new economy emerging. 
But at that time, if you had painted a broad brush on retail, you would have missed a lot of opportunity. And there was this bifurcation, if you will, that we saw. We just look at the data, the best retail centers actually did well the last 10 years in terms of rents and, and footfall. We're resilient through things like COVID. But there was real losers in that too. I mean, there were real winners and losers. And I think the smart investor needs to be able to, like anything, sort through signal and noise and be able to discern and make their bets on what the winners will be and acknowledge that there will be losers. I think the mistake that investors could make is painting that brush too broad because the market today, in the moment that we're in right now, people are more interested in a multifamily or industrial, but the pools of opportunity there are only so much. We all just can't go buy those two product types and expect that it won't be priced beyond perfection. And so I think a smart investor needs to look broadly at the lay of the land and every opportunity needs to be thinking about office in addition to all the other sectors and have a vision and view about what will make the winner go forward. I think I would add to the the location point and the idiosyncrasy, I think only accelerates now where there's certain locations and certain building types with the right amenitization and the right experience that are going to be just massively outperform the ones that aren't in the right places. But the where those places are may have moved over the last few years, right? As a population shift. A hundred percent. I think whenever I started just underwriting deals years and years ago, it was interesting. Everybody talked about executive housing. You want to be near executive housing. And then about a decade ago, it, it shifted. Okay, it's not executive housing. It's where the younger people want to be. It was kind of what the mantra was. I think this next shift is exactly what you said. And I think it's now going to be about I used the word ecosystem before. I think it's a good one. It's kind of what is the ecosystem that that project is in? And it's more than just a transit. It's more than just one particular thing. It's a convergence of things, I think, that makes a really special place. And so I would argue location is important, but it's not by the metrics we used to use for what matters in terms of how we think about location. Totally agree. Um, I thought I might pivot a little bit here. We've talked a lot about office. Obviously, you all are playing across all the food groups and a lot in specialty as well. Office, natural place to start the conversation on the future of real estate, given everything that's transpired. But it's really more than just an office story. And a lot of what we wrote about is about the ripple effects and what it's meant for behavioral changes. And people moved and they shop in different places and they have different commuting patterns. And it's changed a lot of things. There are two things that really strike me as near certainties. One is that mixed-use properties and really mixed-use neighborhoods are the way of the future. And we were talking about this in 2019. I think placemaking has been a theme for a long time, but this recent environment has just highlighted how critical that is. And as we look within neighborhoods and really cities at large, those cities that are structured with really dense office-centric neighborhoods and less of a mixed-use environment across the city haven't performed as well. They haven't seen the attendance and they haven't seen the population growth that other cities have had. And and so that mixed-use thing, I think, has just become so much more important. And the other thing I'd say, we just talked about this, is that location matters not just in office and not just being transit-oriented, as which was always important, but now the transit patterns may have shifted a little bit and that location matters. But location across multifamily and location across retail and within office, like that matters more than it ever did. And that's just becoming more important altogether. Neither of these things are new. With that context, like would love to th- understand how you and Heinz are thinking about the broader landscape right now, like go beyond just office and what's really different today for you than it was, say, four or five years ago. Yeah. Well, I certainly think that it's not new to say the experience economy is what's really driving a lot of behavior. 
I think I would agree with that theme in the future forward lens. And I think that theme will deepen in some ways. But I think something to really keep in mind is the demographic profile of a lot of major economies around the world, including the United States, is undergoing some changes. And I think that a lot of real estate developers and investors really rode not only, frankly, an interest rate curve down, but also a demographic curve up. And that was in many ways chasing the millennials as they were maturing out of universities and moving into the urban environment and wanting places to live that were more urban in nature. And I think that as that wave ages, their needs are going to change. And I think that is an impact we have to think about. Some of that impact as millennials age is going to be a spreading out that a lot of them who maybe went to some major markets are wanting to move closer to home as they have children, as their parents age, other factors. But I think that they're going to bring a lot of the urban sensibilities they had and loved in some of these big cities to some of these other cities that they're going to move to, which are a bit spreading out right across the country. And so I think that that in itself is an opportunity to recalibrate how we think about what we're providing as a very significant kind of age cohort works its way through their life and their just all the changes they're going to need. Because obviously the built environment responds to demand and that would be a deep pool of demand. I do think there's another element though, which is you've got other demographics as well that are changing and shifting. And I think responding to those appropriately depends on the market you're in. And I think also thinking about new waves of demographics. So like my children, my oldest daughter, 16 years old, and she's preparing for university and she's already talking about where she's going to live. And, and it's interesting to hear how the next wave is thinking and they see the big cities as big opportunities for them. And so there'll be a new wave of people coming. And so I think, you know, it's important to kind of keep all those factors in mind. Some things are going to need to evolve and change in response to this. And just personally, I, I think some of the negativity around urbanization is probably overdone. I think the cities will rework themselves. I think we're already to some extent seeing that in New York, but I think they'll spread to other cities where people are a bit negative, such as San Francisco right now. And it's an important nuance. Like I mentioned at the beginning that the people that have moved aren't moving back, but that's a different statement than saying other people aren't moving in. There's still the magnetism of the cities and of the urban core. And of, as you said, like younger generations coming up and still seeing that excited opportunity. And it doesn't seem like 20-year-olds and 22-year-olds are going to be excited to move to the suburb where, where I live, right? It's not, not a whole lot of that happening. So one of the harder questions, you know, has been posed to me as I think about it, and would love to get your perspective, that some of the conversations I've been a part of, you know, really seasoned investors saying, this is a 10-year cycle that we're going to go through. There's a degree of obsolescence that just is going to take time to figure out. We're going to have financial challenges where, you know, before the stock that we have today, really clears through that system. And it's this perspective that they're absent any intervention, this is going to take a long time for us to really digest what hybrid work has done across asset classes. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But I think the harder question is, what needs to be true for that prediction to be wrong? If that's the unmanaged scenario, in most of our report, when I say 13% down in the median city and in a dire scenario, 38% down in some of the worst cities for office demand, that's an unmanaged scenario, right? That's in the absence of intervention. I'm, I'm just curious to get your thoughts. Like you think across players like yourself, the banks, government bodies, your tenants, so many stakeholders here, like what are things that you think about that need to be true so that it's not a 10-year cycle so that we don't go through this prolonged period of uncertainty? Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about, Brian. I think that what's happening now is really interesting. In my career, I've never seen the alignment of stakeholders that we have today 
And you really named them. You think about the cities right now are motivated for openness to change. They're seeing their tax base eroded. Certainly the lenders don't want a bunch of buildings back. Equity holders want to be able to hold on and create new opportunities. But I think one of the most interesting stakeholders right now is the tenants themselves. And I think it's because of COVID and the desire to outperform and compete in the global economy. They also are really open to change. And so you think about moments of disruption. What do you need for that to happen? And I think one of the things you need for a tipping point for disruption to actually occur is that alignment of stakeholders. And I would argue we have a very uncommon moment right now happening right before us. And I think that itself is going to accelerate a lot of change in our industry. And I think that's very exciting. And I think that the the forward-leaning owners and operators, developers, and investors are going to embrace that because, again, I think there's going to be winners and losers out of that. But it's exciting. And that's fundamentally why I don't think this will be a drawn-out 10-year process. It, it will take more time than next year. I mean, but it's it's definitely not a decade in the making. I think things will start breaking loose and discussions are happening every day of people trying to figure this out. And again, when the stakeholders like that get aligned, I think some big things will get unlocked. Yeah. And I like what you start with tenants, right? With Obviously, we spend a lot of time with tenants and it's the uncertainty of the moment, I think, that's going to drive a lot of change where folks are saying, sign like a 10-year lease, like, I don't know how much space I need in two years. How can I sign a 10-year lease? And so the whole model is just not working right now. Yeah. And again, this is a super exciting element, this. And I think that this is like every other industry ever, right? I mean, it's all about the customer. It's all about who's paying the rent. And if we're all honest, I think real estate has lagged in its ability to keep up with customer demand and and getting ahead of what customers want. Again, I think that's a big opportunity right now. To me, what's fascinating, and this is things that we've talked about, Brian, before, is looking at productivity. And it's interesting, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, in some markets or even longer, we didn't know what a vacancy rate was in a lot of markets. And literally years and years ago, we sent people to count cars to make an estimate of what a vacancy rate of a building is. And with time and with data, what was an art became a science. And it became a science that you were able to outperform because you actually had the data to know what a building vacancy rate was as an example. And it's interesting that we forget that. It's just that within the industry, you just take a lot of things for granted and assume they always were that way, but they weren't. It was a process to create it, and it was a moment of ability to outperform. I think this next wave of art to science will be productivity, because you look at a building today, and you don't really know what's going on inside. And I think that as we get closer to our customers, our tenants, I think being able to be data-driven and how we approach that is going to be a differentiator, and we'll look back on it, and it'll all make sense, you know, in the rearview mirror. And even though today it's a little bit like an impressionist painting, right? I mean, you kind of have a vision of what it could be. You can't see exactly how it's going to play out. But I think with time, this will be one of the next thing of many things that I think that are going to come into the marketplace to help define success. Well, and it's an exciting evolution in the way that you think about your space as square footage and how many square foot do I need per person to what am I trying to accomplish with that space? What am I trying to do there? I agree with your productivity and I would say like productivity in the long run, but but employers are like, hey, I need to attract people. My space is where it is, what it looks like, what happens there. It used to be like, well, I have a ping pong table in a cafeteria. So that's pretty good, right? And now it's like, there's a whole lot more to, I've got to attract people. I've got to retain them. They've got to be happy at my workplace and my firm, but also day to day. One thing I bring in from our survey is 
we ask people, why do you go to the office? Like when you do go, why do you go? And it's like, well, I go to see my colleagues and you break that down. It's like social, it's creativity, it's collaboration, but they're going there to be with people. And when you've built the old cube farms, people aren't leaving their couch now to come in and sit in a cube. It's just a whole different thing, but there's a different reason for being there. And I'd argue we're going to a place that's much better than we were before based on all those factors. Hopefully, as we talked about, hopefully it's not a 10-year road to get there, but there's a better future ahead for the asset class. There is. And yeah, I mean, you look back historically at at office, I mean, it housed the means of production and think about how radically the means of production have changed. I mean, we don't need these huge places to store files, to typewriters. I mean, a lot of our, our technology has shrunk and it's changed. And the knowledge economy obviously has created a wave of differentiation that's needed to respond. But it's interesting just how slow historically our industry has been. So I I get the cynic, right, to say this will be 10 years to work through. It's funny, even some of the terms in real estate are almost like medieval terms. There's just, they in many ways haven't kept up with how we would think about servicing a customer. Words like landlord, I mean, like where where these words come from? And I think that there's going to be a whole new wave of thinking in terms of how we serve our tenants. And there will be other ways to make money, new ways to make money. And I think that, again, is the exciting part of what's next. Yeah, it's great. And look, I think our re- the report that I started with is a bit of a sobering perspective, but I really like how our conversations, obviously, your and my conversations in the past have gone this direction too, but it's the opportunity of the moment. It's not just, it's not a foregone conclusion that we're in a difficult environment persists. It's an opportunity for us to all remake what's there. And I think that I really like the arc of this conversation and how opportunistic it's been. I'll end on that positive note and just flip it to you. If you had to pick one thing and say, hey, in today's moment or looking forward, like what's the one thing that gets you most excited about where we are, about what we can do? There's a lot of actually good things happening today just around the world and within the real estate industry. There are great opportunities in a lot of places. There's stuff that needs to get worked through still. Everybody's sober minded about what that means. But in light of all that, there are interesting opportunities. This conversation hopefully drew it out, but I think thinking about where the moments of disruptive change are within an industry is itself incredibly exciting. And I think that there's an opportunity to really remake what the future of our industry looks like. And I think we're at that moment right now. Like I said, the alignment of stakeholders, I've never seen this in my career. It's always been some significant thing in the way that just feels so much less out of the way right now. And that's the door that we're going to run through and figure out what's next. And that's exciting. So there's a lot of great opportunities around the world. But ironically, I think U.S. office, which has been in negative headlines for a number of years now is, is, has become, I think, a pretty interesting space to be in. So kind of landing it back to where we started, I think, yeah, figuring out what's next for office. Exciting times ahead for sure. David, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Always enjoyable to have the conversation with you. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Deal Volume with me, Brian Vickery. If you enjoyed this episode, Please take a moment to leave us a review or rating and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform to be notified about our upcoming episodes. Join us next month as we continue to explore the dynamic world of private markets. Until then, you can find our most recent insights on our website, www.mckinsey.com.